Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Abstract. Our guest today has published papers on quantum information, quantum computation, particle physics, quantum machine learning, artificial intelligence, quantum algorithms, high-dimensional entanglement, and a ton with titles so esoteric it's not even worth confusing you. But have no fear, Alba Cervera Lierta is here, and she's done the work. She spent almost a decade studying the quantum world, and she's here to share her knowledge with us right now. So, let's get going. Alba, I'm thrilled to finally have a quantum scientist on the show. It's been about 15 months in the making. Welcome aboard. How's it going? Hello, Jeremy. Thanks for for inviting me to the show, and I'm happy to be here. And yeah, I'm good. So far, so good. Excellent. So, uh, before we move forward, please tell me and the listeners a little bit about who you are, why you're here, and how you got here. I'm from Barcelona, from Spain, and I study physics there, uh, as well as my master in particle physics and uh, astrophysics. But then I started my PhD, and I started in particle physics, but then I changed my field to things related with what is called quantum information science. And in particular, at the end of my PhD, I started working in, in quantum computation, using these fancy new machines that are appearing, like the ones that are uh, comes from IBM, from Google, and other companies. And now recently I moved to Toronto two years ago to continue with my studies in this field as a postdoctoral researcher in the University of Toronto. And where are you right now? Now I'm in Spain, but just because COVID situation, (laughs) but I'm working for Toronto, so remotely. Fair enough. Okay, so you got that Canadian in you. (laughs) (laughs) I hope to come back soon, yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, hopefully we'll welcome you back with open arms. I'd love to know why you study quantum computation. Like, what drives you? What do you get out of it? At the beginning, uh, I was interested with many fields in physics, not only quantum. Mm -hmm. But then during my degree, I did one of the subjects, which which was quantum information science. And I really enjoyed it because I thought it was something completely different than uh, what I was used to working. And when I started my PhD, I found a supervisor that uh, just merged the two fields, particle physics and quantum information. So it was perfect for me. And and then when I discovered all this world of quantum computation with new machines that are coming, a new computational paradigm that really attracts my attention. And, uh, and it's an amazing field because many things are happening. I'm always interested in talking to physicists because I know that they're interested in understanding how the world works at a very particular level. But one of the things that that always troubled me when I was studying physics is I always felt like if I focused on one thing, I'd be missing everything else. Do you ever experience that? I know at the PhD and the postdoc level, your research is very, very focused in a particular domain. When you go to work or you're doing research, do you ever think about all the all the things that are out there that you're not focusing on? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, this always happens with all fields in physics and also in, in any other science because you don't have time for everything. And that's kind of, sometimes it's frustrating. But at the same time, I'm really happy that the field that I'm working on, quantum computing, merges different fields. So in the end, you have the opportunity to work on different stuff, not only quantum computing like theory and that's it. In the end, you have a quantum computer and you want to explore different physics with that. So you have the opportunity to work with uh, different people from different backgrounds in this physics. And uh, and yeah, so it's uh, quite of interdisciplinary. So it compensates that uh, a little. 
Sure. So I'm definitely curious to hear a bit about how your research fits into other fields. But before we do, let's actually get a quick definition, at least in your words, of what quantum information or the, the study of quantum information is and quantum computation. How do you define that for yourself? So this field, quantum information, it's a mix between quantum mechanics and classical information theory. So quantum mechanics was a, a theory that was developed at the beginning of the 20th century, and it was developed to understand what's going on at the microscopic level. So there were a lot of physical phenomena that was completely unclear why it worked, and you couldn't explain with the rules of classical physics. And this were Max Planck and other physicists uh, give a quite esoteric explanation of some of these phenomena. And this was how quantum mechanics emerged. So after that, there were a lot of applications. For instance, nuclear physics was understood thanks to quantum mechanics and also things like uh, photodetectors that are that build um, solar panels or lasers, etc. So this is the first quantum revolution, the first applications of quantum mechanics. But then uh, some people started to realize that we can use the, these uh, strange properties, these esoteric properties of microscopic systems mm -hmm. to uh, define a new way of computing. And not only computing, but managing the information that is carried by these, by these systems. So instead of uh, coding the information into bits, we can encode information in, in quantum bits, also called qubits. Mm -hmm. And this information is carried in a completely different way as, uh, as we are used to with classical computation. So this was the beginning of this film, quantum mechanics with classical information theory that emerged this quantum technology superfield, which has different branches. And what are those branches? One is uh, communication which also includes cryptography. So how can we use these qubits to communicate, to define protocols that are more secure than, than the classical ones, etc.? Then we also have sensing or metrology. So how can we build uh, sensors that are extremely precise because they use these quantum mechanical effects? Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, quantum simulation and quantum computation. So how can we use these qubits, these quantum uh, bits, to perform computations and simulations of not only of quantum uh, systems, but also from any kind of system that we find. So in the end, defining a new computational paradigm that uh, depends on different rules. And these are basically the three big branches of uh, quantum technologies that are based on this quantum mechanics plus classical information theory. Okay, thank you very much for that very nice overview. So for some reason, the first time I heard about quantum computation or like the idea of a qubit, I, I pictured in my mind like a quantum abacus with little beads that you could slide around and, and manipulate physically. Is that at all like what we're doing with qubits? Are, are these like physical objects that we can actually manipulate and see? Or is there this other level of abstraction where like we're dealing with just like waveforms? I, I know things can be very, very complicated and, uh, and wishy-washy in the quantum world. Well, the short answer is, yes, we can see the qubits in some cases. It depends on the technology because there are different ways of building these qubits. So, for instance, okay. if you use one of the main technologies, it's called uh, superconducting circuits. And these circuits, in the end, they are chips. And you can really see the circuitry that, uh, that defines the qubit. So it's kind of you can see them or you can see the system that generates them, but you cannot access the state of them. So that's the first point in quantum mechanics that is extremely weird, I, I know that, which is that uh, quantum mechanics, these qubits are in superposition. So they are not a zero, they are not a one. They can be a mixture of a zero and a one. 
And this mixture, we cannot observe that. It's something that it's going on, but we cannot access that information. What we can access is at the end of the computation, we ask the qubit, are you a zero or are you a one? And with <laughs> okay. that, we can we construct a, a string of, of bits and we can process this data. And this data is classical. So the point is quantum computation works in the following way. We have these qubits, we manipulate them using other quantum systems like lasers, pulses, etc. And we put all of them in this weird superposition that we cannot see. I mean, we only know that some set of rules that we can apply and that's it. But at the end of the computation, we ask the qubits, okay, that's that's enough. Are you a zero or are you a one? And they will tell you one thing or the other with certain probabilities. Um, maybe 50% of the time I'm zero, 50% I'm one, etc. And with all this information is when we can reconstruct what's, what was going on before. Okay. So the idea of quantum computing is the middle part is the is where the magic happens, and it deals with information in a completely different way, sometimes much more efficient than the classical one, but we have to pay a price that we cannot see what's going on during the process. Okay, so I've actually never thought about it this way. So when you're performing some kind of quantum computation, you actually end up using the result when you finally know what position or, or what kind of role these qubits were playing, a one or a zero. Once you find that out, you can actually kind of try and play the tapes backwards and figure out what happened before that. So like we're, we're doing quantum computation to actually figure out what's happening in this in-between. Yes and no. It depends on the algorithm in the end. But the idea is you don't have to because you design the algorithm in a way that it doesn't matter what happened in the middle. You just hope that, you know, the system follows the rules that you know. And in the end, it gives you a solution of the problem somehow. So you don't really need to reconstruct what's going on in the middle, although you know the rules. So you know that if you apply this gate, this will happen. If you apply this other gate, this will happen. But if you really want to, to know exactly what's going on, then you have to simulate the system. And that's extremely inefficient to do. So the magic uh, is in all these quantum phenomena that occurs in the middle that we control in the big picture, but we cannot really access what's going on in the middle, just trusting the device that it will carry the quantum computing task properly. So in a sense then, to, to really harness the power of quantum computation, we shouldn't be aiming to understand what's happening in this middle state. We should be aiming to develop algorithms that perform consistently and give us outputs that we want. Yes, I mean, in the end, you understand what's going on. You just don't see what's going on, you know? <laughs> so you understand the physics behind it. Is that frustrating it. for you? <laughs> Not really. I mean, that's part of the magic, let's say, of quantum mechanics. So you understand the physics because you can make, I mean, it's not only that you trust the machine, you can perform a series of tests that uh, assure you that your theory is correct. And the, the most precise measurements have been done with quantum mechanical systems. So we know for sure that quantum mechanics work. The point is during the, this process of computing, we cannot see what's going on. I mean, precisely like this qubit is in superposition. It's not, it's that, it's what. We cannot see that. But we know the set of rules, we understand the physics, so we can, uh, we can program the algorithm in a way that explores different, what is called interference patterns or entanglement or this other quantum mechanical phenomena. And in the end, the final result is the one that we will process. So it's a matter of making the proper mapping into your classical world to the quantum world, letting the machine evolve quantum mechanically, and then waiting until the end and taking the result to post-process and... 
So I know it's kind of a magic and it's complicated. It seems complicated and it is, of course. But at the same time, it's something that we are used to it. Uh, all, all people that work in quantum computing and in quantum mechanics in general. So that's how it works. We cannot change the rules in that way. Uh-huh. So maybe just to kind of ground this for myself in the way computers currently work. From what I understand, computers... They, they transmit information in ones and zeros, right? So like uh, the, either there's current flowing through a circuit or there's not, right? There, there's a gate that's blocking current or it's not. From what I understand so far, the difference between a quantum computer and a digital computer is in the quantum case, you don't really know what's going on from giving the, the, the algorithm or, or, or saying uh, this is what you're supposed to be computing now and seeing what the output is. But in the digital case, you can actually observe that process. Are there other differences other than just the fact that we don't know what's happening in the middle? There must be, because you're spending your postdoc doing it. Yeah, this is basically the thing. So the point is, we don't know what's going on each time. What we know, what what is the description of of the system or what is the information of the system. For instance, a qubit can be in a superposition of 50% 0, 50% 1, let's say. So when we run the algorithm, we don't know if the qubit is in the 0 or the 1 state. We, we have to wait until the end to ask the qubit, are you in the zero and the one? And then you repeat the process multiple times, accumulate the statistics, and you see, okay, it was in 50-50%. So the point is, okay. since we don't know that, mathematically, we have to add everything into our formulas. Like, okay, let's assume that it's in a superposition, but we don't know exactly what is going on. And if we try to figure this out, the qubit is not a qubit anymore. It's either a zero or a one. That's the point of quantum mechanics. You cannot see the system. You cannot open the box. But uh, what we do is just accumulate the statistic and then we reconstruct, okay, it was 50-50 or not or whatever. So that's a simplification because it could be more than positive. Uh, it can also have negative probabilities. I mean, it's a it's a weird what? thing in the end. Yeah, because these are not only 50%. So we only observe the probability of zero or a one. But during all the process, it, it has, instead of probabilities, it has what is called amplitudes. So amplitudes can be positive, can be negative, can be complex. And because of that, there can be interference between different qubits that are in different states. You can have plus one and minus one, and this can cancel each other. And this is part of the things that quantum computing algorithms exploit. So instead of having only these positive numbers, they have more things. And these are one of the quantum mechanical phenomena that, of course, it's completely different as classical uh, computation. And you need to understand the physics behind it to control it somehow. So this, your quantum gates will not be, now you're a zero, now you're a one. Your quantum gates will be, okay, you were a zero, and now you are a superposition of zero and one, for instance. So this is good, though. So, so hold on a second. This is a lot. I, I want to start breaking this down. This is, this is great. So in the digital case, we have kind of these like discrete values, either zero or one. Mm-hmm. In the quantum case, we are not either zero or one. This is, this is now clear to me. But also, we could be negative one. So we have all of the values between zero and one in the negative direction. And complex. So, so. And also complex. So that, like, I guess when you say complex, you're talking about um, like the mathematical construct of exactly. like... Complex numbers. Imaginary numbers mixed with real numbers. Yes. <laughs> so if you're listening right now and you don't have the mathematical background to understand complex and reals, I barely do myself. So we're not going to go there, but... All this to say that we're amplifying the possibilities infinitely almost. Because yes. we're going from a discrete system to a continuous system where these qubits are anything that you 
want them to be, but also you can't control them. They're like bratty teens. You tell them to go to sleep, but they don't want to go to sleep. But you can, but you have to control it in a different way in the end. So the point is it's continuous and discrete at the same time because the qubit is either, it's, it has two levels, zero or one, okay? But these levels are not well-defined. It's not like always zero or always one. And then is where you have all the continuous of possibilities of having a little bit of one, a little bit of zero, etc. Someone told me a very good analogy to understand that. So imagine okay. that you have different um, tubes with different water and everything of two different colors. And you can open them and close them and let the water flow in one direction or in another direction. Okay. So if you have two col- water of two colors, blue and red, so when they mix, you cannot really separate which molecule of water is red, which one is blue. It's really complicated mm-hmm. to see that. But then you can just engineer a system of openings and closers, etc., in a way that at the end of the circuit, you obtain a water in a particular mm, mixture of, uh, of these two colors. Mm-hmm. So this is more or less what happens with quantum computing. So the water are the qubits. So you cannot really see what's going on in the middle, although you, ha- you understand the physics, you understand many things, but... You cannot really access that. Uh, but at the end, you can design all these systems of openings and, and, and barriers, etc. These are your quantum gates in a way that at the very end, whatever arrives there is the solution of your, of your problem. So we can look at that purple water and we can figure out exactly how much red and blue is in it. Exactly. That's very cool. I actually really, really like that. We can put some filter. Ima- imagine. I mean, this is, of course, an analogy. It has its limitations. Yeah, but yeah. You can imagine that you can put a filter at the very end and you obtain, okay, this, this part of red, this part of blue. But in the quantum computing case, instead of this, this filter consists of running it multiple times and accumulate the statistics. And sometimes it arrives red, sometimes it arrives blue. So you put all <laughs> oh of God. this together. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so much fun. So much fun. You mentioned something before, which is that you can build up quantum systems, quantum computers in different ways. You can create qubits in different ways. Can we almost imagine those different constructions as like different quantum operating systems? Not exactly, because the system is exactly the same. So the point is, how do you build the qubit? So it's like, which materials will you use to build the transistors in classical computation? So it doesn't matter really the material, the transistor will be the same. So it will have the same rules. So the idea with qubits is the same. It will have the same rules. The problem is, okay, which materials should we use to build it? And there are different technologies. We have, uh, I mentioned before, superconducting circuits. We can use photons. We can use atoms. We can use ions. We can use many things. And in the mm-hmm. end, these are quantum mechanical systems that obey a series of rules. It's the, in a similar way that we use one or, or another material to construct the electronics in the end. So we use this material because it's better, because these reasons. So what we are studying currently in quantum computing is which material, so which system is better for building these qubits. But the how they work, it will be exactly the same. How the algorithm is, is exactly the same. It doesn't change. So it's not different operating systems. Interesting. So quantum computation is, a, like in, in a sense, a well-defined process in that no matter how you construct the qubit, the same thing's happening. Yeah. Of course, it will have its experimental limitations. Like the, this qubit's quality will be better, would be worse. It will take more time. There are many things that could change from one system to the other, but the algorithm will be the same. So the idea behind mm-hmm. it, how it works, the expected result, etc., this will be the same. This will not change. Okay, so now that we actually know a bit more about what's going on inside of a quantum computer, all of this time and energy and money going into developing these things is hopefully allowing us to 
compute some fun things. So what can we currently compute with quantum computers that we couldn't compute or could compute much more slowly with regular computers? And once we figure that out, I also want to know what have we not yet been able to compute that you believe we can in the future with quantum computers? Let's take it one at a time. Okay. First of all, now current quantum computers are prototypes. In a sense, they are, built, uh, they are made of a number of qubits that in the end we know how to simulate them with a classical computer. So because the system is not so big, they are still small, so we can still uh, work with them and we can simulate what's happening, etc. This, as these scales and more qubits are added to these computers, this is becoming more and more complicated and intractable eventually. There are only two experiments that prove something that cannot be done with a classical computer. And both experiments were, uh, they were, it was a benchmark. So in the end, it's not a particular application. It's just some computational task that cannot be reproduced by a classical computer. Well, it can, but it will just require a huge amount of time, like millions of years to reproduce okay. or just thousands and thousands and thousands of, of computational powers or racks, for instance, in supercomputers. So these two experiments were carried out by Google. Okay. The first one, it was like a random generator that generates a sequence that cannot be reproduced exactly with a classical computer. So you cannot simulate what's going on, what's the result of the machine with your classical computer. So this was okay. the first experiment. So it, it didn't have a particular application as far as I know, but it was the first time that someone proved, well, we have this thing that cannot be simulated with a classical computer. So it's the first step. Well, this and sounds maybe like we could use this application in cryptography. No. Yes, that could, could be a potential application. create sequences that can't be recreated, right? But we have currently other devices that also are quantum random generators that only require one photon in the end. So there are other devices that are actually used in quantum cryptography, also as a prototype, etc. And they use this quantum randomness to generate these truly random numbers in the end. And the other experiment from the, a group of, in China, in the University of Science and Technology, it's very similar. It's also, it's also reproducing something that cannot be simulated with a classical computer. It was a physical system with photons. But in the end, the goal was the same. It's not a particular application. It's just a proof of concept like, look, mm -hmm. we can do that, and a classical computer can't. There's something you said before that we glossed over, but it kind of blew my mind and I got the chills a little bit. You said that with a single photon, you can produce a truly random number? Yes. Is that what you said? So there are, from what I know, let's just say a lot of photons in the universe, okay? And you're saying each one of those could be harnessed to create a random number. So we could essentially create as many random numbers uh, as we want, just by reaching out into the universe and grabbing photons. Well, I mean, it's more complicated than that in the end because you have to treat this photon in a particular way. And in the end, of course, more photons are involved. So it's just the model, but then the machine, it's composed by more, more, much more things. But that's what ha it's happening all the time. I mean, quantum mechanics is that, it's randomness. So what's happening, this qubit that is in a superposition, it's time that we measure it and it's either a zero or a one. We obtain one or the other randomly. So, of course, at the end, we, there is a probability a distribution, but if we obtain uh, one number at each time, it's, it's just random. So we cannot predict which will be the result. So there is randomness inside of quantum mechanics, which is the base of all the universe in any way. So we are surrounded by randomness all the time. It's That's a matter amazing. that now we can control it. So now we can generate this randomness in a way that can be used for something. 
My so, grandparents are going to freak when I tell them that we can now control the randomness of quantum mechanical nature of the universe. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's actually that. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh and, my god, yeah, that's yeah. insane. And they are commercially available, by the way, these random generators. So it's nothing really? crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are many companies that build them. Of course, using them for uh, communication, it, it's not so obvious because you need also to transmit the information, so you need to do other things. But the random generator is something that is the state-of-the-art technology. So so you can buy one if you wish. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. I have my afternoon cut out for me. going to see if I can get myself a truly random generator and just, just have, a, have fun with it. <laughs> now that we're on the topic of, of randomness and the, and the inherent randomness of quantum mechanical uh, processes, do you believe in free will or a deterministic universe? Wow, that's uh, the big uh, question for all physicists that work in, in quantum uh -huh. mechanics. What is your interpretation? Well, I, I believe in free will, but that's just a belief. Uh, I mean, both things are just belief in the end. So, so because this, is, this intrinsic <laughs> randomness, I don't see how can be controlled in a way that everything is determined, because it's not. So it's but at the same time, it has many applications this, that could lead to a completely different discussion about philosophical sure. <laughs> implications yeah, yeah, yeah. of quantum mechanics. Yeah, It's not the reason why we're here today. I, I just had to ask because I was curious. Because, <laughs> I mean, maybe the randomness can be described by some higher level system we don't even or can't even comprehend with our human brains. But <laughs> in, in any event, we're going we're gonna to bring it back. So... What can we do with quantum computers in the future that we can't do with quantum computers now, in your opinion? What are we working towards? Many things, many things. Starting by many things that cannot be done with the classical ones. Some of yeah. them can be done with quantum computers. And I will give particular examples. So Let's do it. To develop, for instance, materials, we need to understand the, all the chemistry, all what's going on at the molecular level. To understand these molecules and how the reactions occur, etc., we need to understand the atoms that are around, etc. So we are moving to the microscopic world in the end. And to explain this microscopic world, we need quantum mechanics. And, okay, the theory is clear, but the problem is how can we simulate quantum mechanics? So we can study and see and prove different things and, and put together mm -hmm. two molecules and see the reaction, etc. That's extremely complicated with classical computers. Not only complicated, it scales exponentially. So the more particles we have and we want to describe, the more complicated it is by a classical computer because the amount of memory that the simulations require is exponentially large. So that's why at the, in, during the 80s, when these, the quantum computing field started to emerge from quantum info, Richard Feynman, which was a super famous physicist, a Nobel Prize, he suggested, wait, why are we using classical computers to simulate systems that are quantum? Why not building a system that is also quantum to simulate quantum? And that was the, the, one wow. of the initial ideas. So to study all these um, physics at the quantum level that at the end determine things like uh, uh, chemical reactions or that at some point will lead to, to the development of new drugs or also new materials, etc. So all these things are super important, of course, for many applications. And the point is, we cannot simulate that exactly with classical computers. We can do some things, some clever things, but not all of it. So that's the first application of quantum computing, simulating the physical world, simulating the quantum systems. But then, so, so right now we're actually we're simulating quantum computers with digital computers. Yes. But we eventually want to use quantum computers to simulate the real world. Exactly. We're kind of building this this hierarchy, right? Exactly. We're, ultimately, we're not really that interested as like 
all of humankind to figure <laughs> out how quantum computers work. We want to know how the world works. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, okay. it, but that's cool. one, of, one of the reasons why quantum computers will not replace classical computers. They will just be used for these particular applications where classical computers are not enough. So classical computers are more than enough for, for instance, having this conversation, you and me, or to check your email, or to answer the phone, or to watch the television. You don't need a quantum computer for that because these tasks are, are already efficient with classical computation. But there are okay. other tasks that are not, and that's why we are building these quantum computers. And one of these tasks is to simulate systems that are extremely complicated and complex, and in the end they are quantum. So that's, the complexity comes from the fact that they are quantum. So let's build something that behaves in the same way. That's the idea. But then there are other things that can be uh, um, computed efficiently with quantum computers. And that's some words that appear in the 90s. And it was one of the big discoveries of quantum computation. And one of the most famous ones that maybe some people have heard about is the uh, factorization algorithm. So it turns out that if you use all these quantum mechanical properties of the qubits, etc., and the quantum computation, you can perform computations in a completely different way. And this allows you to, to exploit properties that make problems that are completely, that are impossible to be solved with classical computers efficient with quantum computers. And one of these problems is a mathematical problem that is the factorization algorithm, so factorizing numbers. When we talk about the factorization algorithm, we're talking about taking a number that can be divided by other numbers and writing it out in terms of the numbers that multiply to give it. So take 24, for example. We know 24 could be divided by 2 to get 12. The 12 could be divided by 2 again to get 6. That could be divided by 2 again to get 3. And then you're left with 3, which can't be divided by any other whole numbers. So you've got 2 times 2 times 2 times 3, and that's the factorization. And the point is, why you need factorization? Well, all the cryptography in this world is based on the fact that factoring is complicated, not only complicated, it's completely impossible with of large numbers with classical computers. So if you have a quantum computer, you can solve that. So that's the first thing that people were aware, like, okay, wait a moment. If we have a quantum computer, we can break encryption in the future. So, so this is a problem though, because like with quantum computers, yes, we can create really safe systems by using quantum cryptography, but if anybody else has a quantum system, then they can also decode it, right? So like, it's kind of a zero-sum game, no? Not quantum cryptography. We have two options here. Change completely the system. So another uh, protocol, classical protocol, and that's, some people are working on that. This is called post-quantum cryptography. But the problem of that is that maybe you can change the, the mathematical algorithm, but who tells you that the quantum computer will not find a way to break it too? So that's the risk in the end. Mm -hmm. And another way is change the paradigm and move into uh, quantum cryptography. So it's a different way of, uh, of uh, encrypting messages and everything. And these are not... It's not factorization this... anymore. No, exactly. It's not factorization okay. anymore. And, that's, and this is completely... Uh, technically, it's safe because it cannot be break by, by a quantum computer either. So these are the two strategies, and that's why different groups and companies are working in both directions, because we are far away still to have this quantum computer that can break encryption. So no worry, nobody will break encryption at the short term. But it's something that we should be prepared at some point. So we have still years ahead, but uh, we have to do something. And that's why many people around the globe is working on that, governments included, of course of finding new ways to encrypt uh, of encryption to be safe in front of the future quantum computers attack. <laughs> well, so, so this is kind of 
bring us back to something you mentioned early on, which is that there are kind of three or four main applications of quantum computers. You said there was metrology and there was uh, there were those sensors <laughs> and there's cryptography. So are these kind of is this basically what we're getting at earlier on when I was asking about interdisciplinary applications of quantum information or are, are there other fields or other other questions you think we can answer outside of these three or four examples that quantum computers can be used for? It seems almost too limited. No, actually, um, everything. It could be useful for many things. It's the same question as why is a computer useful? For what? I mean, you can say, of course, for computing, classical computing, but then you have different applications because you can use your computer to simulate drugs, to simulate uh, new materials, to use machine learning techniques, to use many things. So many people are also working, for instance, in quantum machine learning, so using this quantum computation for machine learning. So there are many people working on that too. And of course, the applications of, of quantum machine learning will be similar to the applications of machine learning that are a huge amount of applications, as you probably know. So the message is, it can be used for many, many things, actually almost as many as a classical computer, but not exactly the same things, because there are some things that a classical computer is not enough and a quantum computer will be. And then there are still problems that not even a quantum computer will solve or not efficiently, but that's how it works. It's okay, because in the end, you can just put together everything, uh, quantum computing, classical computer, and try to solve these problems, even if that means that it takes a lot of computational time. So we will see. Yeah. But in the end, the message is it can be used for many things as classical computing, but of course, uh, not absolutely everything. So we should study that. We are actually studying that. So if, if quantum computers aren't like the end all of computation, crazy idea. I know right now that in physics, we're having a very tough time reconciling quantum mechanics with gravity. And we're creating a quantum gravity integrated theory is very difficult. Do you think we could have like gravity computation? (laughs) Or is that just like completely? Wow, that's like my crazy idea, I would say. But what do you mean exactly by using gravity? I don't even know what I mean. It's like we can use (laughs) we can use a quantum physics to to create computers. So I, I wanted to know if, if we could use, like, hmm. gravity. Oh, okay, like, well, who knows? Who knows? I mean, a uh, few years ago, nobody knew that quantum mechanics can be used to compute anything. So who knows? So maybe someone had the crazy idea of using gravity uh, for computation. I could, I could probably ask you questions for the next hour on this, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just close it off with, like, one overarching question that I, I really want to know. So... What mm-hmm. do you think you were put on this earth to do? Like, what do you think your biggest contribution to the world could be on a big or, or a small scale? Well, that's a tough question <laughs> because I'm still quite young in my opinion, so I don't know yet. And, and I actually, I don't want to know because if I knew by now, okay. that would be boring if I know what I will do in the future. But at the short term, I know what I want to do. I want to contribute to spread this field, of course, as any other researcher, and try to start initiatives, if possible, to to set the grounds, to expand this field to other fields. Because now quantum computing, it's still, let's say, in the physics realm. Now it's expanding, and now engineers are also in, and and computer scientists are are also entering. But I would like to contribute to to expand this further and put together efforts from biologists, chemists, and, uh, and people working in finance also, uh, people working in artificial intelligence, everybody in the end, because it's like I have this tool, this quantum computer that can 
do computations in a completely different way. Now tell me what are the problems that you want to solve and let's try to figure out how can we do that with quantum computations. So I would like to work in that direction and to contribute in, uh, in that direction. You can be like a quantum consultant. Oh, there are already. There oh, are yeah? many. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. Yeah, there you are can get many. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get in there. Yeah. <laughs> many quantum computing companies and software companies, hardware companies. Now everybody's starting their, their own startup or company. Because it's something that, you know, someone has to explore. So it's a kind of race of who explores uh -huh. it first. And, and, and it's, that's why the field is so interesting right now. It is absolutely fascinating. And I, I love that, that we're still so early on where we're, we're, we're still simulating these, these very simple quantum computers with only a handful of qubits with digital computers. So who knows what is 10, 20, 30 years down the line. I'm, I know I'm personally looking well, forward to it. Well, or right now, because now we have the first experiments that proves that you cannot use a classical computer for that. So we are now in this barrier that we will not be able to simulate these quantum computers anymore. So okay. they are, you know, exiting our laptop, let's say. Uh -huh. So we are just now. So no one, if you ask someone older, you know, from the 80s, 90s, etc., all these people that started this field, and many of them will say, I will never thought that we will be able to, to construct these computers because that was very fancy in the, on the paper and the physics was clear. But from an engineering point of view, that means that we can control individual quantum systems, which is crazy. We can control the state of one photon. So this is something that it's crazy, but we are, we are now in that level of, of technology, let's say, uh, development. And we can build these computers. Not only that, these computers are starting to overcome the classical computers. So we are just, you know, in that transition. And that's crazy. I'm sure that in the next years, quite more sooner than later, we will start uh, witnessing the first real applications of quantum computing. Like, look, I did this, I found this, and I use a quantum computer for that. Look, mom, I figured out the state of a photon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was actually a really crazy thought that popped into my head right now that like we're we're controlling the states of photons which to me sounds like the complete opposite size scale of this like hypothetical structure known as a dyson sphere i'm not sure if you ever heard of this <laughs> it's a, yes, this yes. a large structure that would technically encapsulate an entire star and like harvest <laughs> yeah. all of its energy um mm -hmm. so maybe we don't need an entire star to to figure out well know. we still need to figure out the energy to power all the computers not the quantum and the classical although the quantum are more efficient from an energetic point of view or that's what we thought but we still need the energy anyway to be to to deal with classical computation that anyway. would be crazy if we were using a dyson sphere to collect the energy from the sun which is emitting trillions of photons every second to figure out how to run systems that run on figuring out what's happening with any individual photon. Oh, it's crazy stuff, crazy. It's, a, I can't. it's a closing the cycle, right? <laughs> uh, amazing, wonderful. Thank you so much, Alba, for coming on the show today. I had an absolute blast picking your brain and I'm looking forward to potentially setting up a discussion down the line where I could bring you on with maybe a few other researchers and just see how the interdisciplinarity can come together in a beautiful way. So thank you. That would be great. Thank you and, and thanks for inviting me. It was a very interesting talk. <laughs> You're very welcome, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly, 
on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.